Then kneel and swear this oath. That you, the free men of this forest, swear to despoil the rich, only to give to the poor. To shelter the old and the helpless. To protect all women, rich or poor, Norman or Saxon. Swear to fight for a free England. To protect her loyally until the return of our king and sovereign, Richard the Lionheart. And swear to fight to the death against our oppressors. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are still doing 1938's nominees, and we watched The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland with Basil Rathbone and Claude Rains. It was all right. Yeah. It was... <laughs> I, yeah, that's I totally how I feel about it. <laughs> it's apparently my grandfather's favorite movie of all time. Which grandfather? Uh, Daddy Tom. The Cowboy Lawyer. Daddy Tom, the Cowboy Lawyer. It yes. is extremely on brand that this <laughs> yes. brand of Errol Flynn is like what he is into. And it does support my, these are just the big dumb action movies of the era thesis from our last Errol Flynn vehicle. Um... But it's a little bit less dumb, and the action's better. Oh, yeah. I would agree on both of those points. Also, I just want to say, like, your grandfather, the cowboy lawyer and big Democrat from Texas, Robin Hood, was his favorite movie of all time. Yes. Yeah, cool. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And someone should seriously write a book with your grandfather as... At least a supporting character. <laughs> you know, I was I was watching it and I took a lot of notes, which wasn't really necessary because it is, I mean, it is just the story of Robin Hood, beat for beat, identical to the Disney Robin Hood, the animated one. Yeah, for sure. And like, in a lot of ways... Well, not beat for beat similar to Prince of Thieves, but everything that happens in this does happen in Prince of Thieves, sort of. Yes. My suspicion is they're all not ripping this off, but all doing the like, well, you gotta have the scene on the log where they have the staff fight, because that's in the 38 Robin Hood. Right. That kind of a thing. Certainly with the Disney Robin Hood, they're doing that. And even Prince of Thieves has a bit of a like, well, you gotta... What's well, the dark version of this? Yeah. It's the edgy version of this. Which makes this movie actually suffer, I think, in retrospect a lot more than it deserves. But that is kind of the point of this podcast. <laughs> Because it's not bad. I mean, there's nothing about it that's offensive. It has a lot of opportunities to be misogynistic and never goes there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it never fully goes there. Uh, Maid Marian's pretty flippin' dumb for the first half of this movie. No, but she's like, she has an actual character journey where she goes from being pampered aristocracy to being actually moved by the plight of the poor. Oh, for sure. It is definitely a, like... Women get a bad rap in this movie from a 2019 standard of film and not a 1938 standard of film where it's significantly above par on that one. Oh, yeah. Something that has always bothered me about Prince of Thieves, which I will be the first person to jump in and defend despite Kevin Costner losing his accent 10% of the way into the movie, which thank God... 
but you know, Maid Marian is very much made a target of gender and sexual violence. And I was like 10 or 12 or something when that movie came out. And even then it really bothered me. And I didn't know how to like articulate that because it felt unnecessary. And nobody ever tries to force themselves on Maid Marian, even a little bit. And her maid or whatever, <laughs> Bess, is actually like allowed as much as possible within the confines of the Hayes Code to be a fully sexualized woman who is not right. like a slut. There's a lot of like secretly sort of progressive things that are happening in this movie that do make a benefit, I think, actually, in retrospect. But as far as like it being exciting, it's really hard to get exciting for a movie where you know literally everything that's going to happen. I think that's true, but I also think there's just something... I've always thought this pacing was weird. The way this story was paced was weird when I didn't realize that the Disney Robin Hood was ripping it off, because I always thought the Disney Robin Hood had a weird pacing, where you kind of think the, like, big archery contest ought to be the climax of the movie, and then you're like... And it's always halfway through. I know, it's really weird. (laughs) And you always go like, fuck, there's another hour of this movie. (laughs) And, like, this is an hour 40. It in many ways, is a very efficiently told story. Especially in the first act, a lot of stuff gets set up very quickly and very well and isn't really belabored. Mm -hmm. But it feels very long because there just keep being these new segments of like, and now Basil Rathbone's doing this plan, and somebody has to go tell Robin Hood this plan, and he has to figure out what he is going to do about this plan, and then they go do the thing for that plan, and then that plan gets gets foiled. And that happens five times throughout the movie. And they only really start switching it up post archery contest stuff. Right. The only real variations on that formula are Robin's execution, where Marion is the one that figures out the plan to free Robin, and the final plan where Richard the Lionhearted is back and Richard the Lionhearted takes over. <laughs> as as the lead of this movie weirdly for the last 10 minutes uh, which is i think the only time i've ever seen this story told where richard the lionhearted comes back before prince john is defeated by robin hood yeah because it's weird usually he like rolls up at the end and it's like hey it's me richard the lionhearted thanks for saving my kingdom it is very weird i don't think it's sustainable i kind of love it as an interesting failure in this movie because it has a very like shakespearean kings always have to test their loyal subjects to see if they really realize they should be king thing to it and i love that shit but it is also wild that like (laughs) this movie is basically could already be over oh yeah you could just declare the movie over and then (laughs) richard the lionhearted shows up and goes like guys i've got one last magic plan and robin hood's like oh shit let's do stuff for the king and then they they all like oceans 11 (laughs) their way into yes prince john's evil coronation and richard the lionhearted is in charge and declares that everybody in robin hood and his band of thieves is all right by him it's also interesting to me that richard the lionhearted rolls up and 
straight up drops lines from the scene in Shakespeare's Henry V where Henry goes out among the common people when they're preparing for the battle the night before St. Crispin's Day. Yeah. When somebody asks him if he supports Richard, he says, I love no man better. And literally that is from that scene in Henry V. So they took the whole idea and then lifted the lines yeah and i do love this is 1191 so i love the idea is that (laughs) yeah this was king richard's idea and then henry five like learned about it right or that 500 years later shakespeare's ripping off richard the lionhearted and putting words in the mouth of his descendant a couple hundred years later But still, a while before Shakespeare. And then it wraps back around into the 1930s. Yeah. Where does it start, David? (laughs) Well, with the doctor. And the- no. (laughs) Yeah. The Richard stuff is weird. It's weird in a way I really, really like. But just that the movie spends so much time. Kind of the most interesting thing that happens in there is that Robin Hood does not purely just go like, yeah, he's a great guy, our rightful king, if only he would return, all would be well. He straight up goes like, if that dumb fuck didn't go off to the Crusades. <laughs> like, Yeah, like, he should be here, <laughs> yeah. ruling his kingdom instead of flitting around. Also, you mentioned the Crusades, and that's actually something that's really weird in this movie. It's something that's really inconsistent with this movie and literally every other story is Richard the Lionhearted went to the Crusades in like the Holy Land historically and in almost every movie that I've ever seen if it's mentioned. And here specifically, he like goes to the Crusades in Austria. I think the idea is that he got captured in Austria on his way back from the Crusades. Oh, okay. Did that actually happen historically? I don't, I don't know. I have always been unclear on where the bullshit begins and ends with the story of Robin Hood. Like, I know there was an actual historical figure, and I know that Richard the Lionhearted and that Prince John- Oh no, he was apparently actually captured. I had no idea. The ransom actually became the basis for the mint in Vienna and- built the walls of Vienna. So it was apparently quite a lot of money. And then uh, Leopold V, who was the Duke of Austria who captured him, was excommunicated by the Pope for holding a fellow crusader for ransom. That's historically interesting. But yeah, I guess we would never have gotten there anyway. Another weird thing about this movie is that it creates a tension between the Normans and the Saxons that 100% did not exist in 1191 in this way at all. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that was sort of a long-buried... Well, I wouldn't say a long-buried issue, but it was... Not like there was a Saxon rebellion. It's very weird because the movie like is very aware that it doesn't make any sense. So it ends up becoming this thing where like Prince John is trying to revive the like Norman Saxon thing. Right. Robin has a title and land at the start of the movie. Yeah. Like Saxons clearly aren't an oppressed underclass at the start of the film. And so I think the idea is Prince John's like trying to make them one but it also plays like it happens so fast Mm -hmm. that it plays like this must have been 
like an ongoing simmering thing right but then the movie is very insistent it wasn't like the movie is very insistent that like richard never did any of this shit and never would the reason it's weird is you don't need it like all you need is like the evil prince who is trying to take people's lands and you don't need to justify it with the sort of like french ethnic conquerors versus the anglo-saxon sort of indigenous people who were not actually indigenous to england but you know the ones who were there this is now the story of robin hood right like every other robin hood movie is ripping this off Mm -hmm. it is so interesting to me when there's stuff about the historical story of robin hood from before this that i'm like not clear why it's in there Like, in this, the ransom is mentioned, but the ransom is pretty much implied to just be a con by Prince John. That, like, the actual historical ransom, which apparently was a thing and was paid, is implied to just be a thing Prince John made up so that he could tax the Saxons some extra cash. And Richard just, like, strolls up into England, so apparently, like, he didn't have to get ransomed. He just was not home yet. (laughs) Right, right. And so there's this stuff of like, I guess somebody in some meeting was like, well, you can't not include the ransom. And but from a 2019 point of view, it's like, why the fuck not? I don't remember the ransom thing at all. Right, right. Like, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Uh, Also, there's no sheriff of Nottingham in this. Oh, well, there is, but he's, like, not even important. He's a very minor buffoon character that is the tertiary villain at best. He's a hench person. That's pretty much it. Like, Basil Rathbone plays some character who is Sir Guy of Gisborne. He is the Sheriff of Nottingham role in this, and is brilliantly cast and does a perfect job. Yeah. And Claude Rains as Prince John is also totally great. He is doing... All of the scene-stealing, scenery-chewing work that he did in Anthony Adverse, but to a good cause instead of a bad one. (laughs) Yeah, it is definitely some, like, also the spirit gum is doing some real work on Prince John, and I love it. Oh, yeah. How bad that beard looks is actually, like, at least 20% of the character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think Olivia de Havilland is great. She's a very good Maid Marian. She also turned 103 last week. So happy birthday, Miss de Havilland. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Dame, actually. I think she is yeah, she's she's Dame <laughs> Olivia de Havilland now. Earlier when I was criticizing Maid Marian, it was absolutely a criticism of the writing. She's great in this. She actually is such a good actor, and I really noticed it in this movie because because Arrow Flynn, bless his heart, is not. She is such a good actor that she is one of those people that when she is in a scene with someone, she brings them up to a higher level. Yeah. The scene where they're in her room when he's done his Romeo and Juliet number and climbed up the <laughs> yeah <laughs> the vines on the castle to go into her room, he looks at her during that scene and acts off of her. And in every other scene, he is like cheesing for the camera 90% of his reactions to everything are to give that insufferable laugh that he does. Yes. It's a good thing that you're a handsome bro because you just, you're not good. And I think the scenes generally, I think you're right. That's the one where it works. His scenes that are the weakest are all of his scenes with her because she's such a better actor than he is. I mean, he's the first action movie star in that 
his strength is you don't really think that much about the fact that Robin Hood's plan never makes any fucking sense at any point in any scene of this entire movie. Because he then goes, ha ha, and it works, and you're like, well, all right then. And like, the, the, the fact that it's like, why are you even in this castle in the first place, bro? Yeah. Just doesn't really come up. Time and again, when I was watching this, I thought, this is, this is a terrible plan. For instance, when they go to the archery competition and they're like, oh yeah, but he'll be in disguise, so we won't be able to recognize him. And his disguise is literally like he's wearing a hat and his hair is covered. And I'm thinking this is as much a disguise as every outfit Maid Marian wears because her hair is also always covered and everybody recognizes her. (laughs) To be fair, judging by King Richard, the idea of a disguise was invented about three weeks ago and he's doing (laughs) the best he can. Yeah, that's true. Richard does show up in a monk's robe with none of his face concealed at all (laughs) and it's like uh, probably nobody knows what the king looks like it'll be fine (laughs) which you know totally fair there wasn't a whole lot of mass media or whatever but the fact that the whatever de ginsburg marquis lord sir guy of ginsburg yeah or gisborne has actually seen Robin Hood and eaten with him and been to his secret lair in the forest and doesn't immediately recognize him is ludicrous. Every single scene in this is such a, just shoot him, just shoot him. Why don't the bad guys just shoot him? That every single time he comes swaggering into a scene, I'm really unclear why he doesn't just get shot. Well, I mean, the answer is because he is the action hero. That's literally the only answer. Right. But he is introduced as a character talking down Sir Guy of Gisborne, who has conservatively a, like, four-to-one manpower advantage over him. Oh, at least. In that scene, and doesn't even try. Yeah. He then marches into the dude's castle, lets them lock all the gates behind him, shit-talks Prince John for a good ten minutes, and then just flips over backwards in his chair and is like, Ha-ha! This wasn't stupid for reasons I'm sure will come up later. And then, like escapes through the rafters or something. The beginning of that scene, though, is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in an action movie, where he walks in with the carcass of a deer over his shoulders, with each, like, the front and the back legs are bound and are over each shoulder, and just hits a dude in the face with the deer carcass and, like, knocks him down with the antlers. And I was like, all right. We're really starting on a high note as far as the action is concerned here. Yeah, I want to be clear. All the scenes I'm describing are great. (laughs) Um, They're just... We should get into the action scenes and why they're so much better than Captain Blood. And one of the ways that they are better is that they're a little bit cheating. They speed the film stock up for all the sword fighting about, what, like 20%? Yeah, something like 20 to 50%. A lot of the, like, knocking the arrow, shooting the arrow stuff. A lot of the stuff where you're like, oh, if I know he's just a dude, (laughs) then you start wondering why they don't just shoot him. But also, like, clearly it is very, like, and then grab the chair and then throw it and not, like, 
And then you go high, high, low, high, middle, middle, high, middle, low. But there is a fight choreographer on this movie, clearly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They actually brought in a fencing specialist and an Olympic grade archer and like a bunch of other people who were, you know, legit sport specialists. They had actual stuntmen. They really spent a lot more money on the action scenes in this than they did in Captain Blood. And it shows. The only reason that I even noticed the film stock being sped up is there were a couple of places where it was like the slightest bit jerky in the first really big fight scene in the banquet hall. It was very subtle and it was really well done. Yes. And it really was just on these long shots of the chase part of it that I noticed it. Right. Because they sometimes sort of let him run and get away at 1.3x speed or whatever um, to to justify that a little bit. And then once you know it's there, you can kind of watch for it. But generally, all of the action scenes in this are still really watchable today, even at their worst. Oh, yeah. It is more that the movie doesn't quite know how to string together a singular coherent narrative around a bunch of action set pieces, and so just kind of has five mini-movies that Robin Hood has a cool fight scene in the middle of. (laughs) Actually, I watched Jupiter Ascending last night, mm-hmm. which I do not recommend. Well, I, let me let me caveat that. If you want to watch the most movie ever made, <laughs> and uh, the most. <laughs> it is the only movie by the Wachowski sisters I have never seen. And so part of me, every month or two, remembers that movie exists and goes, now I know I won't like it, <laughs> but... I should really watch that movie. <laughs> if you do watch it, make sure to watch it with, like, at least two friends so that everybody can be like, what the fuck is even happening right now? Which is what I did. But my friend Elena said last night, it's as if they didn't cut or even, like, edit down any of the fight scenes. They were just wanted to have all of the fight. And this movie has that feeling of like, well, we paid for the fight choreographer, and we're just gonna put all of it in there. Because some of the fight scenes are like, really big and really overlong, and they don't weave in and out of the story in a way that is, that's tight, you know? Yeah. My absolute favorite example of that is the the very end of the movie where they trick their way into Prince John's evil coronation. And they do the locking the doors shot where they do this long pan over everybody that's in the room. Right, right. Just to let you know how many people are about to be in this fight scene. Like, oh my god, can you believe it? A hundred people are about to fight. And we're gonna show you all (laughs) one hundred people. (laughs) Right. And, like, from a 2019 point of view, that's kind of adorable. But it is also, like... Yeah, hell yeah. Good on you guys. Yeah, yeah. The general feeling of this whole production, actually, and it's not just the fight scenes, but the costumes more than anything else, but are not the only thing. It feels like the amateur theater production at a, like, very well-funded suburban theater company. The rich people live there and they throw tons of money at this theater and every year they like put on Alice in Wonderland or something that requires very, very little in the way of artistic merit. And the costumes are all made of like 
LeMay and really expensive Swarovski crystals, but they look like they're made by some eighth grader's mom. There is this one fucking spiral staircase in that castle. Oh, yeah. That somebody correctly figured out is one of the greatest sets of all time. And the shots on that are amazing. And when Marion is going down it and she's wearing the long trailing medieval gown with the long trailing sleeves... And you just watch her, like, come down that staircase. Yeah, I had the same thought of, well, I mean, they're putting it to good use. They're really getting their doctor's wives money out of this. To be clear, I think Robin Hood runs down that staircase conservatively four times the first time he's trying to escape from the castle. Oh, yeah. But, like, so by putting it to the best use they can, I mean, they use it every time they think they can get away with it. But yeah. every time, it's like my favorite minor character in this film is that staircase. Oh, yeah. It's it's really great. Also, we should mention that this movie is in Technicolor, which uh, is not unheard of, obviously, at this point, because we did have it in A Star is Born. Like in A Star is Born, I kind of had this moment of going like two thirds of the way through the movie like, oh, shit, right. This movie's in color. Mm-hmm. Why is everything popping so much more? Oh, right. It's not black and white. It does, I think, there's a part of me, and this is picky, it's so picky, but again, it is me looking on it from a 2019 perspective, the Technicolor element really, really makes the big sweeping outdoor shots, not when they're in the forest, but like going up to the castle, and there's the mountains in the background, and like the grass is pretty dry, and it's a more brown than green environment where I went, well, this doesn't look like England at all. This is California. Yeah. Because they didn't shoot shit on location. But then my next thought was, oh my God, they didn't just like go to England where this stuff existed. They built it all. (laughs) Yeah. I think the two places where the color doesn't really entirely work are, you're right, the big outdoor shots where you're like, you guys don't know how to hide it being California in color yet. And Will Scarlet, whose one characteristic is wearing the reddest outfit of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Has literally nothing to his existence, is just a warm body to bounce dialogue off of for Robin Hood, but is wearing extremely red. Also, I couldn't help but look at that guy, and he is, like, incredibly handsome, tall, and thin, and I was like... Oh, that guy's Tinder profile or grinder <laughs> profile in 2019 would blow up. <laughs> There's definitely like a homoerotic element in the beginning of this movie to the married men before Maid Marian comes on the scene, which I'm okay with. Well, for sure. But also in like a humans are just evolved animals sense. He's also just a bright red thing on screen that is constantly like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Yeah, that's true. But it could be worse. Like, if he wasn't an attractive dude and you put him in bright red, it would have been like, oh, that poor tragic human. And instead, he's kind of pulling it off. Yeah. Insofar as anyone on Earth can pull off that outfit, he's doing all right with it. Yeah. Red tights and a red hat and like a red mini dress. Yeah. It's a a lot. I love because (laughs) you learn so little about him that it really does seem like they met at a party once. And Robin Hood was like, I'm wearing green. You're wearing red. What is (laughs) happening? (laughs) I I like to think they met at a party once and then like hooked up 
And then Robin Hood was like, yeah, but see, I'm like, I'm, I'm just not down for a relationship. And Will Scarlet was like, that's cool. Me neither. You want to be friends and dress in monochrome together? Uh, <laughs> but uh, Will Scarlet does eventually end up dressing in a base of all green with the red hat and some other red accents. Right. When everybody decides that in order to be part of Robin's gang, we all have to dress the same. This movie spends more time than any Robin Hood adaptation I have ever seen caveating why this crime is okay. And some of that is actually very nice and needed about, like, really exploring what it means to rob from the rich and give to the poor instead of just using that as a catchphrase. Right. And some of that is, no, 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 if we all dress in matching outfits and say it's for the king, then it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they do actually show the poor and, like, explain that these people have had their houses taken or burned down by Prince John. Which was actually nice, and I think also was certainly a nod to the Depression, which we're still sort of in at this point in 1939. Yeah, well, 38, so yeah, we're, we're oh, so still in it, yeah. for sure. And like, again, what I'm saying is more, the movie gives you a wide range of reasons why his criminal activities are okay, and some of those reasons hold up to scrutiny better than others. Feeding poor people? Sure, fine. We're dressing in matching outfits and saying it's for the king? Mm, I'm- Okay. A break with realism I really like in this film is a lot of the holdups become philosophical dialogues about when thieving is okay. Yes. There's like three separate scenes where people try and like logic Robin Hood into not stealing from them. It doesn't work. One time it kind of works. I mean, the time the king is there. But also that Robin Hood manages to logic why what he was doing was okay. Touching again on Will Scarlet and just expanding that out to the rest of the other characters. One thing that this movie does suffer from in comparing it to other adaptations that people might be more familiar with, like the Disney version and like Prince of Thieves, is the supporting characters of the Merry Men are not really well defined. Like Little John, he's just a dude. He kind of looks exactly like Friar Tuck. They don't have any standout characteristics. I would say that's the biggest problem is Little John and Friar Tuck are basically indistinguishable, but they're supposed to have this little guy, big guy comedy duo dynamic. And it's like, both of you are the big guy. Why is this happening right now? Well, both of them are short and wide. Yeah. So it's like both of them are also the little guy. Yeah. Or at least short compared to Errol Flynn, who I I don't know how tall he was, but he's constantly standing on things. He is the Beto O'Rourke of Sherwood Forest. <laughs> but yeah, that that's my major criticism is that other than Robin Hood, none of the Merry Men actually have like any personality. They're pretty well indistinguishable other than Will Scarlet only because he's dressed in bright fucking red. I think the movie tries to do the modern action movie thing of everybody besides our lead has the one single salient characteristic. It's just, it's 38, so they need a little bit more time to really get the kinks worked out in that plan. Right. Sometimes two people seem to have the same salient characteristic. I actually kind of think it's adorable that when Robin gets captured, all of the Merry Men instantly seem, like, totally helpless. (laughs) 
that they really need Marion to come along and give them a plan because they're like, we were gonna just run at the castle and die. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. you have a better idea? And I think actually what makes the lack of distinguishing characteristics really stand out is that both Prince John and Maid Marian have really, really clear second-in-commands. Yeah. Basil Rathbones is Prince John's, and then Maid Marian's is her, like, I don't even know, I guess she's the maid, but she's best. She's obviously, like, quite a bit older than Maid Marian. She is totally horny and really funny, and I love her. <laughs> she's great. I didn't think we were going to get as much of her as we got. Like, there's this scene that's really setting up her horny comedy dynamic. And I'm like, well, the code means we're maybe going to get one scene at the end of the movie that lets us know that, like, she hooked up with a dude. But no, she hooks up with a dude in, like, five minutes flat, and then the whole rest of the movie is trying to sneak off and fuck. And it's great. And the actress who played her, Uno O'Connor, is 58 at the time that this movie is released. So it's, it's really refreshing to see a 58 year old woman who looks it um you know who hasn't been like either relegated to the totally sexless bin after her last fuckable day as the saying now goes or who is like trying to clearly play a much younger character right i mean i wouldn't actually say she looks 58 but she's definitely like this is a middle-aged woman who just wants to get it on and has and everybody's fine with that. Yeah. And unmarried is the other thing, too. It's like, wow, the code was, like, kind of okay with this? <laughs> Weird. Yeah, I guess the, like, idea is that, like, it's not confirmed they're doing anything more than, like, necking. But, like... Oh, yeah. They're fucking... Come on. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I have a whole lot more to say about this movie. <laughs> I, I I don't think so. Um, I, I'm ready to, re to rate and review. Yeah, I, uh... Seven? I'm. I'm. Yeah, I think a seven is good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm. That's that's where I was leading, but then I was like, but there's nothing really wrong with it. I mean, there's. I mean, there's. I think we've gotten so used to like specifically the reason we're not giving it a ten is that it's like racist and sexist and classist. Um, that like right, which this movie doesn't suffer from, but you're right, it's not like a perfect piece of art. No, and it you, we can knock points off for reasons <laughs> other than it's offensive <laughs> as hell. Yeah, and like it's it's you know I I do think it has some structural problems. I also think it's not aiming all that high. Nobody besides Olivia de Havilland is really trying to give a performance tethered to reality. And that's fine. I like The Rock. The Rock is great. The Rock has never once in his life given a performance tethered to reality. But also, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to the films to see that, but I do kind of like it being a little less of a lark than this is, if I'm giving it like a 10. And the thing is, you can have a movie that is really funny and is smarter and tighter and better made than this. You know, like it happened one night, which I know we bring up constantly, but it's because it's really fucking good. It's beautifully directed. The writing is clever. The acting is bar none. And this doesn't have that. It's It feels like an eighth grade production of Robin Hood performed by adults. 
Yes. There's so much of like, oh, the insolence in this movie. Yeah. It's fun. I love that. But like, kind of, we all are on the same page that we love it despite it kind of being bad, right? Like, mm-hmm. the fact that we have a actual mustache twirling villain that talks about what a saucy, insolent boy our lead is, is like... Yes. <laughs> that's... That is great, but is also not going to get a 10. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. It's a solid B. It is not a B plus. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's average because like there are some, well, it's just too fun to be purely average. And like on a technical level, like in 1938, color's really hard. Front scenes are really hard. They pull them both off. I, and I would say actually from a technical level in 2019, I see tons of fight scenes where they've thrown shitloads of money at CGI and they're not even that compelling. Yeah. See Jupiter Ascending. And I hate that I'm like shitting on the Wachowski sisters because like they are literally filmmaking geniuses but my god that movie is a mess. And at least this movie has like a coherent story even if the pacing of it is not perfect. And even if the plans are absolutely unbelievable and you don't know why they work, you at least know what they are. Yeah. I think really what we're getting at here is, like, this is not a great movie, and yet I'm definitely still going to say watch this movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know that I am, because I, I, I mean, I love the animated Disney Robin Hood so much. Uh, that's a good point. That is a good point. And I actually have a really deep soft spot for Prince of Thieves, because Alan Rickman's Sheriff of Nottingham is one of the greatest villains of all time. Also, Morgan Freeman is great in that movie, and Kevin Costner is like, he's there. He showed up. I, I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm still gonna say watch this movie. I get what you're saying. And I'm really saying it because of the fight scenes and the action choreography. Otherwise, you know, Errol Flynn's performance is fascinating more than good. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Cause it's like, was he the only handsome dude who could hold a sword? Yeah. Because he's such a tragically bad actor. Like, Kevin Costner looks like fucking <laughs> Clark Gable by comparison in acting ability. But, you know, I do think there's something to a movie that, like, understands tone well enough that everybody doesn't have to be Sir Lawrence Olivier. Right. And, like, I, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that even from a, like, screen test of time perspective is interesting to watch in this movie that you lose with the i i think objectively better movies of prince of thieves or the disney robin hood i think those are both better films right and i think you weirdly end up losing almost everything great about this movie when you iron out all of its kinks in those versions because you kind of lose you lose the action stuff, you lose the weird kind of sense of unreality that I really like in this movie. It's an hour and 40 minutes, but somehow feels like it's two and a half hours long. It feels like a very long movie. I will cop to that. Well, actually, both of us tried watching this, like started it two times before the third time was the one where we actually watched it. Your excuse was better than mine. Yes, in my defense, the first two times I tried to watch this timed up almost exactly with the two fairly large earthquakes that hit California this week, um, or several weeks ago at the time you're listening to this. 
And hopefully that won't be confusing for you. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully there won't have been two more right before we put this out, so. Yep. So I I think had the Earth not tried to swallow me up, I would have gotten through this in the first run, but my attention definitely would wane. And I would look at my phone for parts of this movie. It's also because this movie very clearly signals, oh, we're in a boring part again. Like, once the fight scene is done, you know you can kind of stop paying attention for ten minutes. Right. Mm -hmm. It is not a smooth watch from start to finish, so I get why you would not suggest other people watch it, but I'm I'm still going to go to bat for it. Yeah. I'm not going to say you shouldn't watch this movie. I'm I'm definitely not, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell people who don't have a whole lot of time to watch old movies that this is a, this is a must see, but like, you can watch it. Yeah. It's not going to hurt you. (laughs) You know, you could like probably put it on and clean the house and stop for the action scenes. Yeah, it definitely does have a bit of a Law and Order marathon vibe to it, Mm -hmm. where kind of part of the fun is going like... It's this part that I knew was coming, hooray. Right. More than you'd need to be engaged through the whole running time. Yeah. So next week, what have we got on the agenda for next week? Uh, I keep failing to open up all the tabs in order to tell me that. So I've been counting on you for 1938. Oh, uh, we are going to watch The Grand Illusion, also known as La Grande Illusion, which is a French war film directed by Jean Renoir. It is apparently going to be subtitled. And apparently was released in 37 in France, but apparently made it to the US in 38. But it also is one of Roger Ebert's favorite movies ever made. So, so I'll read. (laughs) You know, I I have to say, like, I have become such a baby about subtitles because I wear glasses now. (laughs) So it's like, oh, man, I really have to wear my glasses for this whole thing. Because sometimes I just take them off and kind of squid. I mean, I I think one of the reasons, now that I think about it, that I am recommending Robin Hood so much is I do so much watching while I'm doing other stuff right now. Oh, and you can definitely do that with this, no question. Yeah, and, like, you're right that, like, oh, God, I'm going to have to watch the whole movie. I'm going to have to actually physically look at the screen for 114 minutes. See, I always do that for all of our movies. I don't. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, like, I I, I started off really trying to, and then, like, Lives of a Bengal Lancer was around the time I really kind of stopped having shame that, like, yeah, sometimes I'm going to be checking my fucking phone. I am not in a theater. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Like that, definitely. But I like I will put movies on and like go in and out of the room. Oh, yeah, no, I don't do that. I am listening to the audio at all times. And I could look up at the screen at any time that I'm watching one of our movies. But I have definitely not seen every frame of Jezebel, let's say, <laughs> with my actual physical eyes. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> uh, I'll have to erase that from my memory for all time. It, yeah. It, so tune in next week when we will have read and watched The Grand Illusion. Yeah. Until then. This was a movie, though. Like, this was a... Oh, yeah. No question. Like, I'm I'm really imagining my grandfather as a small boy going like, gosh, that was a movie. <laughs> And, like, honestly, I kind of, yeah, that's kind of the feeling I had at the end of it. Yeah. 
It is. That was a movie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. You're going to permit this insolence without even... Fighting? I'm afraid he has no choice, my lady. Well, I have, you impudent rascal. You're not going to hurt my lamb, my honeysuckle. Be still, Bess. Besides, we've nothing but the most peaceable intentions. Have we, men? We only want to smoke his pretty neck. <laughs> <laughs> See? Well, that's the way. <laughs>